I'll pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll sustain my voice as we look at this passage together, but more than that, uh, we pray that you'll help us to set aside the things that might distract us, to stop us listening to your word, and instead give us ears to hear and hearts that are soft to receive your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's always been one of my dreams to learn to fly fish. I don't know if Fly fishing you've seen on TV where, you know, they go in mountain streams and stand there and flick it out and all that sort of thing. It just seems therapeutic to me. You go to these lovely places and, you know, just away from people and it just seems more exciting than normal fishing. I like normal fishing, but normal fishing, usually you just sort of put it in and wait and you don't do anything. Whereas I like the idea of like bare grills of actually hunting my food and that sort of thing. So I've always wanted to fly fish and for my birthday this year, Victoria brought me an introductory lesson for fly fishing. Uh, Sam came with me uh, and we went to this special little place that this guy set up outside of Canberra uh, and it's just got all these little lakes full of trout. And so when we get there, as we're driving in, you can see the trout jumping out of the water and we're thinking, how good is this? We're going to catch a million fish. It's going to be wonderful. Uh, let's do it. Then we meet the teacher and he tells us, uh, actually, uh, you don't get to put anything in the lake. You don't get to do any fishing until you've learnt the theory. And some people who come for the beginner's day never get to cast a fly into the lake. He says, if if you're good, you might get to do it after six hours. And so for a couple of hours, we sat in this little cabin learning the theory of fly fishing. And it set up that he was standing there with these windows behind him for us to look out at the lakes. And there's the trout, you know, like jumping around and doing that. Uh, and then for a couple more hours, we stood on the grass learning. And we didn't even have a hook on the line, which is just as well, because we were sort of hitting each other and hitting the wall and all sorts of things, because it's not that easy, let me tell you. Uh, but then about three o'clock in the afternoon, he said, you're ready. You're ready to have a go at actually casting the fly into the lake and trying to catch a fish. Uh, and so we finally got to put into practice all the theory we'd learnt for the six hours so far. And somewhat annoyingly for me, Sam caught a trout and I didn't. Here's a picture of Sam. You'll notice, uh, notice he's got the glasses on because we were getting each other in the eye with the, the flies and that sort of thing. But there you go. Now, that's by the by. Uh, the point is, the guy was absolutely right. We had to know the theory. It would have just been chaos. Even after six hours of lessons, I managed to get mine up in a tree and on a power line and all sorts of things. You know, uh, We would never have got a hook in the water if you don't learn the theory first. In many ways, the last few chapters of Hebrews we've been looking at is the theory of what Jesus has done for us. Uh, You might have found it quite hard going over the last few weeks. Uh, You might have found it a bit repetitive because Hebrews is a bit like my fishing teacher, where what Hebrews does is, is try to drum it into our heads how amazing Jesus is by just subtly different ways of explaining who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But if you look at the start of today's passage, so come with me, chapter 10, verse 19, there is a massively important word, look there, it's the word, therefore, therefore. And it's saying, because of all that you've learnt, because of all the the theory I've set out for you for the last four chapters, now I'm going to move beyond that. Now we move on to what it means for us to know all these things about Jesus. I think Tom's keeping up the picture of the trout just to distract me there, but let's move on. See, today's passage is the climax of the book. This is where the the rubber hits the road, if you like, where he draws it all together and puts it into practice for us. So well done for getting to here. 
Well done to getting to this point. Now we get to the therefore. So let's get into it. My first heading is, it's because of the most wonderful truth. See, because one more time after he says, therefore, just when he's about to go on, he says, I better tell you one more time how wonderful Jesus is and what he's done for you. And he summarizes all that we've been learning in just these three verses. So look from verse 19. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, he is open for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. And what he's done there is, is draw together all that we've learned over the last three or four chapters in those three verses. And the key point it's making is we can approach God with boldness through Jesus. That's the point. We can approach God with boldness through Jesus. Now, why is that such a wonderful truth? You see, I think most Australians think, well, of course I can approach God because most Australians have this idea that God is just sort of like some benevolent old man who, who it's almost like I'm doing you a favour, God, if I go to church. I'm doing you a favour if I even think about you. That is not the Bible's picture of God. See, in reality, without Jesus, we cannot approach God. In and of ourselves, we have no right to come before God. God is holy, God is righteous, God is pure, God is without sin, and yet we are sinners. Everything we do is tainted by sin. We, we fail to love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. We fail to love our neighbours as ourselves. We don't even get close. And so our natural condition is separation from God. And so before Jesus came, the whole Old Testament religious system was designed to show you that reality. It was actually designed to show you, you cannot approach God. It was designed to show you our separation from God. So what they had was they had a tabernacle or a temple, which was a model of the heavens. It was where God symbolically dwelt on earth. And that's where God lives. But you couldn't go in. You could look at the temple you could stand outside the temple, but you could not go in. You needed a priest to stand between you and God. And that priest had to offer sacrifices on your behalf to pay for your sin. And then in the tabernacle, there was this big, thick curtain that stopped anyone getting to the Holy of Holies, the, the room inside the room, if you like. It was separating us from God. No one could go past that curtain. No one could go into the presence of God except the high priest. And then it was only once a year and only after lots of sacrifices. And all of that was set up. This whole elaborate system was set up to show everyone God is holy and you are not. It was all set up to show us. You can't just walk into God's presence thinking, I deserve your love, God. I deserve your forgiveness, God. We have a problem. We are separated from God. There is a curtain between us. But the wonderful truth that Hebrews has been hammering home to us is that is different now that Jesus has come. Because Jesus offers the one true once and for all sacrifice for sin. When he died on the cross, his death paid the price for our sin once and for all. And so what Jesus has done has torn that curtain apart. So there's nothing between us and God anymore. The way to God is open for anyone who trusts in Jesus. So that's what we've learned in Hebrews. That's the, the theory we've learned, if you like. And that's what that therefore at the start of verse 19 is sending us back to. 
Because of all those things, therefore, look again at verses 19 to 21, therefore we can now boldly enter the presence of God because the blood of Jesus opened up the way. The curtain between us has been ripped apart and now we have Jesus representing us before God. That is the wonderful truth we've come to know. And so it says, if you know that, if you've grasped what these chapters have been repeating time and time again, if you've grasped it, here's what you should do. And what he does is he gives us three let us's. He says, if you know this, there's three things you should do. So look there, look down those verses, you see a let us at verse 22, a let us at verse 23, a let us at verse 24. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. So let's look at it. The first one is, let us draw near to God. So look at verse 22. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us draw near to God. Now, this isn't just talking about praying to God, though that's a part uh, of what it's talking about. It's not just meaning when you die, you'll be able to draw near to God because you'll go to the heavens where he is, though it includes that too. It means live your whole life now taking advantage of the relationship you have with your heavenly father. God is not your enemy. God has forgiven you. God is your loving father. And so God welcomes you into his presence. So live like that is true. That means listen to God speak in his word every day. Talk to God in prayer every day. When you are anxious, turn to God in prayer. He loves you. He wants what is best for you. When you are joyful, turn to God in praise. When you fall in sin, don't hide from God. Don't flee from God. This is the incredible wonder of what Jesus has done. When you sin, draw near to God, confess it to him and take advantage of the forgiveness Jesus has won for you. When you have doubts or struggles, don't run away from God. Don't hide from God. Draw near to him and ask for his help. Draw near to God. And do you notice there, we never draw near to God because we deserve it. It's not draw near to God because you have such a clean heart yourself. It's because Jesus has cleaned your heart. Jesus has washed you clean. If we know that truth, then let's draw near to God. Second one, let us hold on to our confession. This is verse 23. It says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He's saying, if you know the wonderful truth about Jesus then keep trusting him. Don't give up. Don't wander away. Don't look for another path. Don't get distracted. Hold on to what you believe with everything you have. Because if we stick with Jesus, then we will know the joy of eternity with him. But if we give up on Jesus, then there is no hope for us. Jump with me down to verse 26, because this whole last part of the chapter is actually expanding on verse 23. So the whole second half of the reading, it's expanding on verse 23. It's about what happens if we don't hold on to Jesus. Look from verse 26. It says, For if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. I do not think 
there are scarier two verses in the whole Bible than those two verses. Don't let it wash past you, look what it's saying. For if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. The deliberate sin it's talking about is what we call apostasy. Uh, It means to decide to turn away from trusting in Jesus. To know the truth about Jesus, to say, yes, I follow Jesus, but then to say, I am walking away. I'm going to give it up, to give up your faith. And it's saying, if you do that, there is nothing left for you. It's not saying Jesus' death can't still pay for your sin. And by God's grace, some people do walk away for a time, but then return and find forgiveness. But what it is saying is, if you reject Jesus, we've got nothing for you. God has nothing for you. If you reject Jesus, there is no other way. It's not like there is some other alternative way to know God. There's no other way of salvation. It is Jesus or it's nothing. And if we turn our back on Jesus, there is no hope for us. All that awaits us is God's judgment for our sin. To make the point even more powerful, he compares rejecting Jesus with if you were an Israelite in the Old Testament and you rejected Moses, and you rejected God's law in the Old Testament. You see, for this whole book, he's been explaining Jesus is greater than the Old Testament. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus is greater than the tabernacle. All those things we've seen. He says the Old Testament was the shadow pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the reality. And so here he makes the point, what happened to someone in the Old Testament when they rejected the shadow? What happened when they rejected the Old Testament law? Well, the punishment was death. The punishment for turning your back on the shadow was death. So how much worse will it be if we reject the greater thing? How much worse if we reject the reality, if we reject Jesus himself? Look at verse 29. He says, How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Again, please let the power of these words hit you. That is what we are doing if we reject Jesus. We are walking on the blood of Jesus. I hate to say it like this, but imagine someone spitting on your loved one's grave. That's what it's talking about. It's saying that is what you are doing to Jesus. If you know the truth about him, but then you walk away and reject it. Understand what a horrible thing it is to turn away from Jesus. Do not fall into the trap of thinking it's just an intellectual decision. He believes in Jesus, I don't. Just like he likes fishing and I don't. No, God has sent his son into the world to save us. Jesus has willingly suffered death. Jesus has willingly suffered hell to pay the price for your sin. To understand that and then say, I don't care. To know that and then reject it, that is to trample on the blood of Jesus. God loves you. God longs to forgive you. God longs to welcome you into his presence. God has done everything you need to make that possible by trusting in Jesus. But if we reject Jesus, then we say to God, 
give me what my sin deserves. Give me death, give me judgment. Please hear the seriousness of this warning. Look at verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Whatever we do, we must hold fast to our confession. Keep trusting Jesus. So how do we do that? How do we keep trusting Jesus? Well, we've been given some answers to that already. Firstly, remember the wonderful truth about Jesus. Keep it fresh in your mind. Remember how wonderful Jesus is and what he has done for you. Keep what you know about Jesus at the forefront of everything you do. We've seen that already. Secondly, draw near to God. Don't pull away. God loves you. Draw near to him. So we've seen those answers to how we keep trusting Jesus. There's two more in this passage. The first is here in verse 32. uh, And the second is the last of those let us statements back at verse 24. So we'll start at verse 32. And that is, remember the zeal you had at first. Look with me from verse 32. It's quite a long bit I'm going to read, but it's just, I think it's wonderful, so I want you to follow along with me. It says, remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, that's after you first came to know Jesus, after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathised with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. I love these verses because what they are is a wonderful description of what happens when people first come to know Jesus. For them, it was in a time of persecution and he's saying, even though people were, were persecuting you for your faith, it didn't worry you. You put up with taunts and suffering because what do you care what people think about you when you know the God of the universe, when you know that Jesus loves you? And he says, you didn't even care when they stole your possessions because you say, well, this world doesn't matter. I've got treasures in heaven. I love Jesus. And so the writer is confident they'll keep trusting Jesus. He says, you've done it before. Why on earth would you give up now when you persevered before? You've done it so far. Don't give up again. But for whatever reason, their zeal had gone cold. Maybe the relentless persecution they faced had taken its toll. You know, maybe it had finally got them down. Maybe they looked at the non-Christians around them and they thought, well, maybe life would be easier if I just joined in with everyone else. Maybe they looked and they saw the sin of their neighbours and they thought, you know what, I wouldn't mind some of that. And so he says, remember that zeal you had at first. Remember what you were like when those wonderful truths about Jesus were brand new to you. Remember what you were like when you first understood how God loved you by sending his son to die for you. Remember that amazement you had then. Remember that joy you had then. I want to say to you tonight, if you've never known that, if you're someone who doesn't yet follow Jesus, this passage is written to Christians to say, stick with Jesus. But before you stick with Jesus, you've got to come to know Jesus. So I want to say to you, if that's you, we want to tell you about Jesus. Come to the life course, like we were hearing about before. But for some of us here, maybe our faith has gone a bit cold. And so we need to hear this word. Remember what you were like at first. Now, when you became a Christian, your situation was probably different to theirs. But whatever it was, remember how knowing Jesus first impacted you. I remember the zeal I had at first when I was 18 and I first became a Christian. I remember the way I used to lap up God's word. I would just take any opportunity to learn God's word. 
I remember the way I would move mountains to meet with my brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, I would cause trouble because in my family, because I'd say, you know, I'm going to church. But I'd say, there's something on for the family. So I don't care. I'm going to church. I'm going to Bible study. I'm going to this. I'm going to that. I want to learn God's word. I remember the way I'd sign up to go on any mission, any opportunity to tell people about Jesus. I remember the way I wouldn't care what people thought of me. I'd invite them to church or, or do anything to just hear the good news. That is what it was like when I first grasped the gospel. But the thing is, that zeal sort of waxes and wanes over the course of your Christian life. Christian life isn't just one steady line. You, you go up and down. That's the way it works. That's reality. His point is, though, don't let that zeal, don't let that amazement, don't let that joy you knew at first become ancient history. Remember it and cultivate it again. But there's one final key to Christian perseverance. It's perhaps the key to running the race to the end. And it's the final let us, so my last heading, let us keep encouraging one another. Look at verses 24 and 25. It says, And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We tend to think very individualistically in our society, it's part of Western culture, uh, and we then import that into our Christianity. We think it's just about me, I'm saved by Jesus, it's about me persevering. God does not think that way. God says, what good is it if you stand firm in your faith, but your brothers and sisters here don't? I said, what good is it if you persevere, but your brothers and sisters don't? We are in this together. And God says, we need one another if we are going to persevere in our faith. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we are bombarded by the preaching of the world. You might think, I don't listen to any sermons other than on a Sunday night, but you do. Every TV show you watch, everything you look at on the internet, everything you read, every advertisement that goes past you on a bus is the world preaching to you live without God. It's the world preaching to you, this world is all there is, just do it, live for now. When you have that in your ears, in your eyes, every minute of every day, we need the encouragement of other Christians if we are going to withstand that onslaught, if we're going to keep the faith. To be a Christian is to be a part of God's church. The idea that someone can say, I love and follow Jesus but I do not meet each week with my brothers and sisters in Christ, is just a nonsense. That God just has no category for a Christian who does not meet with their brothers and sisters in Christ. To be a Christian is to be a part of the fellowship. And the way we keep following Jesus is by being encouraged by our brothers and sisters we meet with. And the way they keep following Jesus is by being encouraged by us, as we meet with them. And these verses make it really clear, you cannot encourage each other if you are not present. I don't mean that in the modern psychological sense of are you actually present, you know, that I, I mean physically present. You cannot encourage if you are not there. See, when you come here on a Sunday evening, even if you don't share a word with a person here, you actually encourage them. Because they look around, they say, I'm not alone. Look at all these other people who love the Lord Jesus, who follow him. Even though you haven't said, I'm not encouraging you not to share a word, but you know what I'm saying. 
Now, I think these verses have two challenges for us, so two final challenges. The first challenge is to prioritise meeting together. There's nothing new under the sun. Verse 24 there tells us even in the first days of the church, there were Christians who did not prioritise meeting together. Even in the book of Acts, there were Christians who did not prioritise meeting together. From the beginning, there were Christians who did not make meeting with God's people the number one priority in their week that God wants it to be. Understand this, there is nothing more important than meeting with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Nothing. Nothing more important. At church, first and foremost, but also in gospel teams, or in whatever way you can meet with brothers and sisters in Christ. It's interesting when you read the book of Acts or even earlier parts of Hebrews, it talks about every day encouraging one another. You see, there isn't actually, I think, any good excuse for regularly missing fellowship. You need it, and more importantly, your brothers and sisters need you. So if you've got into bad habits in this area, or if you've never got into good habits in this area, I want to say to you, there is such a clear word from the Lord in this passage to you tonight. It is so clear. Change now. This week, make a change. And of course, in the COVID realities, there are some on the live stream. I looked at where the video is this morning, but the video is over there for people on the live stream. And that is good. But I want to say to you there, that is not church. It's listening into church. It's good if it's all we can do. But I want to say, make sure you get back to proper church as soon as you can, where you are physically present with your brothers and sisters in Christ. God says we need it. And God says our brothers and sisters need it. So that's the first call. Prioritise meeting together. But then the second is, come to encourage. Do you notice as I read out verse 25? Look at verse 25 with me. I didn't read out the word worship before meetings. Did you notice that as I read out before? I just read out meetings. Uh, That is because that word isn't actually there. For some reason, they've just thrown it in, even though it's not there. And if you don't mind writing in your Bible, and you've even got permission to do it in the church Bibles, look at that, I'm letting you write in the church Bible, cross it out. Cross out the word worship there. I'll explain why. You see, people have this funny idea that I come to church for me to spend time worshipping God. That is not right. That is not right. The New Testament says you worship God 24 hours a day, seven days a week, by how you live your life for his glory. Romans 12 tells us that. You come to church, the Bible says, to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, we worship together at church. Of course we do. But the key is, it is together. That's the key element of church, together. And so I want to say to you, we need to come to church with that attitude. We need to come thinking, how can I be an encouragement to others? The best advice I ever got as a young Christian was, pray before you come to church about how God can use you today. Pray before you come to church about how you can be an encouragement to others. So when you come in, don't sit on your own. How wonderful is it 6.30 church? Look at that. Can't see you know everyone's within at least one chair of someone but when you come I, I talk about church is the opposite of going to the cinema you know when you go to the movies and, and these days you they give you on the screen you get to choose your seats how do you choose your seat if you're anything like me you look and you say where is the best view of the screen that's the furthest away from where anyone else has chosen a seat sadly that's how some people come into church 
They come in and they go, where is the spot where I can see the preacher, but I'm the furthest away? Maybe he can't see me. I'll sit behind a pole. No, but where is the furthest away? It is the opposite when we come to church. We come here to encourage one another. Come early. The hub is not put on so that you get something nice to eat before church. That's a a small portion of why it's put on. The hub encourages you to come so that you can encourage one another, so that you can come with the right attitude to church. Stay after church. Go out after church so that you can talk about what you've learned and encourage one another. But then in church, use your gifts to encourage. If you have musical gifts, offer yourself to to join the music team. Whether you have music gifts or not, sing loudly to encourage the people around you. When we say a prayer together, there is nothing more encouraging, I'll tell you this because I sit at the front, when it is nothing more encouraging than to hear every voice saying the words together. Nothing more encouraging than to hear every voice singing loudly. Nothing more discouraging in a church, sometimes when I visit other churches, to hear, and I don't hear anyone singing. You see, we are here to encourage one another, work out ways to use your gifts. Because when Jesus returns, you want to look around and see it is not just you who persevered trusting Jesus. You want to look and say, there is that person who I encouraged. There is that person who encouraged me. We want to look around and see all these other people as well because we encouraged them and they encouraged us. So do not give up meeting together, as some habitually do, but encourage each other and all the more as you see the day of Jesus' return draw nearer. I'll pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth that we can approach you with confidence because Jesus has washed us clean. And so, Father, let us be people who draw near to you, not people who pull away, but instead let us be people who live every day knowing the wonderful truth that you long for us to talk to you and hear you speak. Let us be people who hold on to our confession and especially help us to remember the zeal we had at first and not lose that joy and that amazement that we had when we first came to know Jesus. And more than anything, let us keep encouraging one another. Help us to prioritise meeting together. But more than that, help us to come ready to be an encouragement to others and ready to receive encouragement from others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.